0: friends and fellow entrepreneurial teachers. I am joined today by a fellow entrepreneurial teacher and an anti-netter, Kathleen Sprecklin. And I'm really excited for you to get to know Kathleen. She has a a lot of really fun stuff to share and her work is really exciting and interesting. So to give you some brief background on Kathleen, after gaining slight renown in the field of computer science in the 80s and 90s, Kathleen settled into a long career as a caregiver to all the folks at PA distribution who sit or stand in front of a computer all day. She saw her role as enabling the machine to be the servant of the people while honoring the order and integrity of the data. Her computer science background in systems building aided that mission. Newly retired, Kathleen found a new group with an underserved need, Writer Moms. People with a story to tell, but seemingly no time to write. So she drew on her systems building together with a three year period where she served as a statistician for a renowned psychology researcher, which I definitely want to ask about that. Uh, And she's created a tool that only requires a pen and four by six file cards to enable writer moms to bridge those fragments of time into a coherent story with living characters. So that was a pretty cool introduction to your work. but just as a, a framing question for our audience, in your own words, what do you love to teach and to share with others, Kathleen?
1: I like to teach the joy of writing actually liberating the joy of writing from the writer because so many people are have a story in them that's just burning in their hearts and they want to get their story out, but the Teachers all tell them you need at least two hours a day or give it up. And that makes me very sad because I don't like to see people with a story that they can't get out. So I had to devise a system to break loose of that.
0: Yeah, and I think that that challenge is not unique to writers either. It's really anyone like I'm a huge fan of Cal Newport. And he talks a lot about deep work and finding there's these larger blocks of time to get your work done, but especially as a parent, it, those are sometimes very few and far between and when you get them, you're often exhausted, especially if you're a stay at home parent so, uh, so finding strategies to maximize those snippets of time are a really real challenge in today's age. So. Tell us a little bit about your journey. How did you end up here?
1: Well, as I said, when I was retired, one of the things I did was to go visit a precious niece who loves to write. And she was my model person because she put her writing aside. She's a mom of three. She's homeschooling them and just said, there's just no time. I can't do it. And uh, so I left feeling sad and determined to figure out a way to do it. Meantime, as you said, I'm an anti-nutter. I love my four by six file cards. And so as I thought about her problem, and I think it was you who talked about uh, Dr. Feynman working on 12 problems, the renowned physicist, that he always had the problems he was working on on a file card in front of him so that anything new he read, he would say, does this help with that problem? And so consequently, everything I added to my Zettelkasten, I kept asking myself, will this help my niece's problem? And gradually, the threads came together from so many different areas, from memory experts, from uh, the field of psychology, which I worked at as a statistician for three years, That was the final breakthrough when I recalled that moment, because the researchers were able to gather data on social interactions using a coding guidebook. And you could hire, you didn't have to be a PhD psychologist to be able to do this. They usually hired psychology students. And after learning how to work through the guidebook, they could code human interactions reliably and effectively and capture the emotions that were going on in the interactions in such a way that if you put two different train coders viewing the same scene they would code it accurately that was the key piece for me that i put together with the uh all of the other avenues to realize that means that there exists a method by which you can capture the emotions of your story on one of our favorite file cards and in just a few moments because these coders are capturing them as the video plays. They are coding in real time and that fast they can capture the emotions. So if our writers take a few minutes to capture the emotions of where they are in the story, and learn how to use some keywords to encode them, then later on when they have their next fragment to write, they can pick it up and reconnect with their story idea very, very quickly. So I tested it out and it worked. So all I had to do was teach the guidebook basically, which is no small feat because there's 28 different character traits that have to be taught. And I teach it in a 35 lesson class.
0: It also includes
1: how to handle the note cards.
0: Excellent. And we're definitely going to, I'm going to ask you about that because I'm sure there are some people listening that don't know what an anti-net is or what a zettelkasten is or what any of those words mean. So I promise if those are new words to you, we're going to get there. But I want to focus on your story a little bit more first. So I feel like like that's the tail end of your story and there's a lot of of years that came before that and experiences that i'm sure led up to it um so for for the listeners you know the the definition that we use of entrepreneurial teachers expands far beyond people that own businesses or educators in classic school systems so entrepreneurial means being driven creative unsatisfied with the current solutions available and then brave enough to do something about it. And teacher just means that you love to inspire growth in others. So Kathleen, as you look back on on your years and your your various careers and experiences, did those elements show up throughout your life before uh, retirement and this new venture? Um, Because I believe, I could be wrong, but I don't think you've done anything that is specifically entrepreneurial as in owning your own business before this point. Um so is that correct?
1: Well I was um uh, my husband and I had I don't we, it was never really a business but well I actually it was because we put it on a schedule C on our income tax return. Um we wrote a program, a computer program that played the game of chess in the early days of microcomputers. Okay. Uh, and- and in fact, the program uh, won the world championship of chess the first time it was out and for probably for half a decade we, we had the title of world champion uh, microcomputer chess. Uh, so that was kind of entrepreneurial and it was definitely problem solving. So I'm not sure if that relates to it, but all of my career has been problem solving. That is the, the key thread more than the entrepreneurial and uh, that's how I ended up being with the uh, psychology researcher, um, Dr. Tom Dushan. It was such a generous heart that he had a statistician who sadly was actually dying of cancer. And he was struggling to do his work. His work was meticulous, but he was getting more and more behind. And so I got brought in to Help out and bring the project back up to speed. Uh, when when they brought me in, they said, you know, it's not a mess, but it's way behind. <laughs> and that's how I found it. And I, you know, brought it up to speed and got the data ready to do do the research. And then I helped to create a computer program to test something that was very intriguing um, in in psychology research. And um, as a result of that, Uh, And also due to the generosity of Dr. Tom Deshaun, he included me as co-author on three different scientific papers, which is unusual for a statistician. Usually you just get mentioned in the acknowledgement section. So um, that was really quite a thrill. And so that was, again, with solving problems, helping him find a way to test in the data his hypothesis, how to set that data up to make that work. Then in my career, my 25-year career, it was all about problem solving. From day one, I was brought in to a meeting to uh, moderate a meeting for, a, for PA distribution when everyone around the table was bringing their challenges with their computer system that they had. What The ways in which they were frustrated. And we made a whole list of 15 problems that were really desperately causing people difficulties throughout the company. Before I left the building, I was only called in to moderate the meeting. But before I left the building, I solved the three top problems on their list. And out of that, I was offered the job. (laughs) So my whole career there was one problem solving one problem after another. But my whole focus was on serving the people. Especially, my heart really went out to people who had to sit there at a computer, fill out a dumb form, putting in information that the computer already knew over somewhere else, and they had to type it in again. And then they had to hit a, mountain, hit a button, and then they had to type something else. And then they had to, you know, just driving people crazy, putting people at the service of the machine and I reverse that paradigm I put the machine at the service of the people uh, so again that was my role problem solving and uh, that's why that's the thing that threads through trying to be a service to people who are underserved with the skills such as
0: I happen to have them so where do you think that that came from was that something that was modeled for you is it just something that was kind of innate were you always curious or or was there someone that inspired and and kind of taught you how to be that initiative taking problem solver
1: oh it was my dad my dad was the ultimate problem solver um, and a hero after rising in the ranks of the company that he worked for all the way up to being plant manager. When the company announced a move out of state, it was his opportunity to step back, not travel with the company, because frankly, he didn't enjoy having risen that high in management. His favorite role was being a production line supervisor, right with the people who were making the products, the people that held the soldering iron in their hand. Those were, those were his people. And so he declined the move and instead got another job, which he worked at through his retirement and steadfastly refused any promotions as this product line manager. Well, just to show you, he was a problem solver too. And in fact, he became the patron saint of problem product, product lines. They would take him to the group of products where it was seriously behind schedule and uh, the morale was horrible. And he would come in there and turn the group into a cohesive team that had a good time, loved their work, and brought their, did great work and got out of their schedule all the way up to speed. Well, one of my favorite stories wasn't his team. I have so many on his team building, but one of my favorite one was his solution provider. In that role as being Uh, electronics assembler par excellence he was called in to a small group of people who were building the very first RCA race computer it was the very first computer that random accessed memory Uh, it used a system that did not make it but it was the precursor of the floppy disk the precursor of the disk drive it was actually cards big magnetic cards that they brought in Well, so he had, he with three other engineers who had designed the computer, the three of them built the first one. So he had the great day of standing back and saying, oh, so that's what a computer looks like after he'd finished constructing it. But the fun thing was there there was a big demo scheduled for this new machine. And they had been up late into the evening, getting it all finished. And it was all done and pretty much ready to put the case on. And they told my dad, go go ahead and go home, you know, get some rest. Thank you so much. And so he did. He came back in the next morning. The case still wasn't on the machine and everybody was very long faced. Oh no, what's going on? What's the matter? Well, it seems they were trying to put the case on. Someone dropped a screw and it fell down into the machine. And there it was sticking out the, you could see it under the bottom of the machine, the little squirrely part was sticking down below and the head was sticking up inside the case. And the tolerances of that machine that pulled magnetic cards in, read them and threw them out, pulled them in, was so tight that that little screw head would have gummed up, the. it would have been ruinous. They could not operate the machine with that screw head there. You could see it from the top down, you could see it, they couldn't reach it. They tried sticky stuff on. You know, tried reaching down with a magnet. They tried everything they could. They could not reach the screw, and they they didn't have time to take it apart, get the screw out, and put it back together. They'd never meet the deadline. So it was like we failed. We came so close and we failed. My dad took a look at that and said, "Give me a break." No, 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 no. no. He got out a wooden roller. This one isn't very visible it's oh, let's scratch. we we'll have a metal one that will show up better the Yeah, it was wooden. He reached underneath the case, pulling <laughs> up this screw. That's spectacular! <laughs> the day was saved, and the machine they got to do their demonstration. Well, their demonstration was for Walt Disney, who wanted to buy the machine for the Enchanted Tiki Room. I don't know if you ever heard of this, but this was an amazing place. Viewers came in and sat on benches, and there were birds that sang and and everything all around you. There were these incredible animated physical creatures with with. It was so complex, you couldn't believe it. And it was driven by this RCA race computer, the first computer ever built with enough power to do that. And Disney had this philosophy. When he started building it, you're crazy. You can't build something like that. There's no computer that can even drive it. He had Disney. Well, Disney had the faith that if he built it, the computer would be ready in time. That was his magic. And it was, in part. Thanks to my dad.
0: <laughs> that is so, an amazing story.
1: <laughs> and we got invited to the opening night of the Enchanted teaching Room to a private showing of the show amongst all of the people that were involved. And, you know, the whole family got to be there and see the first, um, the first time that they, it was rolled out.
0: All right. I think after you've finished your current writing projects that you're working on which we'll talk about briefly I think you need to write a memoir because I know that that I mean having like crossing paths with Walt Disney is amazing oh, I and didn't. I also there's well but even like the fact that your dad did that oh he yeah, not really either because he was okay in the back.
1: we were all in the background it was the team the the engineers that did yeah he,
0: he was just the assembler and the guy with the ruler so, did you get to go to, like, the inaugural Tiki Room? We did, yes, but I did not get
1: to meet Walt Disney.
0: Okay, but still, I mean, <laughs> the Tiki Room is pretty cool. It's a, It'll get stuck in your head like Small World, but that's still pretty awesome to have a piece of your family legacy in, like, the original Disney experience. That's that's fabulous. All right, so that, that's going to lead me to uh, another crossing paths with a a famous name in a moment. But uh, I did want to ask you about, so it sounds like the roles that you've had as you've moved through your, your professional life, they, they sound almost like you were brought in as like this specialty consultant type person or a, a specialist. Uh, did the jobs that you were hired to do start that way or did they turn into that because of this problem solving mindset and also this caregiving mindset which is kind of a uh, counter to what we think of when we're thinking about computer programmers you tend to think of them being very left brain and you are you've done a lot in the the world of science and data and computers and analytics but there's this softness to the the energy that you bring to it so were you hired in as a as a specialist or did it was it just that you turned yourself into a specialist with each job that you stepped into
1: Uh, in both cases I was brought in to solve a problem so I guess you would say I don't didn't think of myself as being a specialist but I guess you could use that term A, a problem solver I was brought in as a problem solver in both cases
0: and how did you gain a reputation for being a problem solver? Was it through the the experience with the chess game?
1: Um, the first one, they just put out a, um, an ad and I the computer chess was winding down and I was looking for a job. And so I just put in my application and got hired. So they didn't, they brought, they knew they needed to bring in someone who was skilled enough to, to get them caught back up because it did mean that that the work I was doing had to be done in a compressed time frame. And so they had to bring in someone who was willing to come in under the pressure. Um, and I guess that's something that has never bothered me too. I've kind of always, even in the field of computer chess, everything was always under pressure because in that market you've got, I worked in the area where we, uh, physical machines that played the game of chess, where you picked up a pawn and. You know, push down on a spot on the board and then push down on its location, and the program was built inside the toy. Um, that was real deadlines because you had to have the E primes ready. Uh, the problems had to be burned in time for the to build the units for, to catch the Christmas season. So I've always worked under pressure. So that, that didn't scare me away. And the second case where I was brought in as a problem solver, I really wasn't. I was brought in to moderate a meeting. Because the people in the room had a, had a problem, and the guy who had the job that he eventually recruited me to replace himself for um, wanted to take part in the meeting. And so he wanted to, he asked me as a, a friend of a friend to come in and stand up. He wanted me to moderate it because he knew I was a computer software person, so I would understand the field, um, but just mostly to go around the room and take people's problems. The crazy thing was that three of them were very easy to answer. And so I could, could help them before I even left the building. And that was the thing that landed me the job,
0: so. Awesome, all right, <laughs> I wanna take it one step back further. I feel like I feel like I might be able to guess what the answer was, but my, my mom is from the same generation as you. And uh-huh. I know that, and she was a, comu- a computer programmer as well. In fact, she she keeps trying to retire, but then ending up getting sucked back in because she's one of the few, as she said, that dinosaurs left that still know how to program in cobalt. Uh, uh-huh. so, and I know that she was told by her, uh, I'm pretty sure it was high school guidance counselor, that she said she wanted to do computer programming. And there, her guidance counselor said, women don't do that job. So she actually delayed going into programming. She went to college for I don't even remember what but it didn't last very long because it wasn't what she was passionate about or interested in and then she did end up getting into computer programming later but initially in her generation she was told that that wasn't something that women did so again I think I have a guess at what the answer might be but how did as a female from you know that time period you know how did you end up in computers
1: I was actually told At a job interview, no, we are looking for a man for that position, flat out. And um, so I told him, well, it was in the newspaper and help wanted general. And he said that was an error. It should have been listed in help wanted men. Because in those days, you had the help wanted men, help wanted women, help wanted general. And general was much smaller. was, you don't mind if you have a man or a woman? How weird. (laughs) And the health wanted women jobs were secretary, nurse, you know, all of the standard things. Um, Programmer, statistician. No, those are all in help wanted men. So I went back, uh, entered a master's program. And while I was in my master's program, the... uh, my first microcomputers began to come out. And so my husband and I wrote a program that played the game of chess and that just changed our whole life trajectory.
0: So. Awesome. And I'm assuming that is what led you to cross paths with Steve Jobs, at least briefly. So can you tell us that story a little bit?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'd love to. Um It, it was the early days of the just prior to the release of the macintosh computer everyone remembers that commercial that you know became iconic at the super bowl where the you know running down the aisle and throwing the hammer and smashing well steve jobs of course was nothing if not a visionary and so he in the months that led up to the release date of the macintosh he released two software developers pre-release copies. It wasn't the Macintosh. We had to work on the Lisa, but it was set up like a Mac software-wise so that we could create our programs and have them ready to go so that the day the Macintosh uh, could be bought in the stores, there'd be a collection of programs that you could buy that very same day that would run on the Macintosh. So, uh, We applied for the program. We had a we already had a program out on the Apple computer. We thought we were a natural for it, but we got rejected. We were told that no, this is prime, we really want a business focus for this. So no, sorry. You know, we only have a limited number of systems. Okay. Well, about halfway through the program, got a phone call. Guy Kawasaki. Hey, you still interested? Yeah. Okay, well, somebody dropped out. You will send you the development system. So I got a pre-release development system and we went to work. Uh, Dan did the job of translating our program, which was in machine language. So if you have a program in a machine language and you're going to put it on a different machine with a whole different processor, you have to rewrite the hold on thing from scratch. So he took that on. And I took on the job of doing the operating system with the mouse, what? Mouse, what's that? Um, and, and creating all of that part. Well, as it got close to the release date, uh, Apple had something called Mac University. He took the, de- the developers came up to Apple in two different groups. The first group were the big guys. Microsoft was a big one. Uh, believe it or not, Excel was born on the Macintosh. They were working on Excel, and um, so those were the big guys. Then the second group were the littler guys, And as a pre-release developer, I got invited and went. Happened to know that, well, that's nice. I'm the bottom of the lease. Well, well, now I know where I belong at least. So we we were in this little bungalow outbuilding. I I suspect it was rented. It wasn't anywhere near the rest of the thing. The only thing we knew about it that might have been the reason it was chosen, it was within walking distance of Steve Jobs' favorite vegetarian restaurant. Um, and he took us there for dinner during the, during the uh, time. But we were given this, the, this little cubicles where we could work with Mac experts to finish getting, the, getting our program ready to go. So be ready for release date. Well, the last assignment was a killer. Um, I won't go into the details, but the title was Identify All the Objects on the Heap. Well, without going into technicality, there was a whole bunch of them. Some were easy to figure out and some were really, really hard. And I worked on it, worked on it, worked on it and got down to the last, I don't know whether it was one, two or three, very few left. And I wasn't making any headway and it was getting late and it was the last day and I was getting frustrated. And finally I just, you know, tears were starting to come to my eyes which was making it hard to see the monitor. So I got up from my cubicle went into the girls' room. Luckily, I was the only female in the building. So I closed the door, sat down on the floor, had a good cry. (laughs) Then I got up, washed my face, went back to my cubicle, and found the last three objects. Ta-da! Well, right about then, Steve Jobs stopped by. And he said, hey, I'm taking everybody to dinner. You can continue working if you want. but." want to know you're you're welcome to come with us to dinner and so i said hey i'll go i just finished finding my last object on the heap so yes if i hadn't found it i'd stay working and he told me at that time he said well guess what of both sessions of mac university big guys and little guys you were the only one to identify all the objects on the heap That's amazing. (laughs) My first contact, personal contact with Steve Jobs was a compliment. Of course, at the time, I didn't know that was a bit unusual.
0: Yeah, yeah, it was still early. It probably wasn't that big of a deal yet. And now it's like, uh, that's, I mean, uh, that would be amazing to have that story, you know, in in your repertoire. But back then, he was just still a guy trying to make stuff happen for the most part.
1: Yeah, and my contact at the time, guy at Kawasaki, was just a guy that worked at Apple. And now he's he's also quite well known. But at the time I, you know, I didn't, you know, he was just guy. So that was it was kind of a fun thing. And it turned out that our Sargon program was the only program that was actually ready on day one outside of the two programs that shipped with the Macintosh.
0: Wow. And what did that program do? Played the game of chess. It was chess. Okay.
1: And when it came out, Steve Jobs wasn't happy with it. He said he didn't like the fact that you know the knight has to move over the top of pieces to make its move. It does a little jump move. And the way we coded it, because I'm not much of a graphics, the knight, flash, 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 flash in its position. Flash, 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 flash where it went and then stopped. That Steve said that was not the way to do it. I should have had the knight lift up Hover over the other pieces and settle down in its new square.
0: Now that sounds like stories I've heard That's of Steve Jobs. The real Jobs. Steve Jobs. So <laughs> yes. now I know I met
1: the real Steve Jobs. Not that
0: imposter. <laughs> That's wonderful. All right. I feel like I could keep keep digging into your past for hours, but I do want to make sure that we talk about the the entrepreneurial work that you're doing now. So it's all it's all centered about writing. So my last kind of question about how you got here is when. Did the, the dream or idea of writing a book, especially a fiction book, considering so much of your history is is analytical, you know, when did that first appear for you? Is that something that's kind of always been inkling in the background or did that come out of this inspiration with your niece and, and exploring the more recent journey you've been on?
1: It came out independently of, the, of my visit with my niece. But possibly out of having talked to her and thinking about writing and how could she write that that probably helped kindle it but where it really came from is out of my love for these four by six file cards and my zettelkasten and i found myself i'm 76 i found myself thinking to myself oh man wouldn't it have been incredible if i had started this thing you know when i was younger when i was much younger It. And so I got this crazy idea, probably because I was trying to help Stacy with her writing. I got this idea: of, wouldn't it be neat if I wrote a story for uh, middle school youth, where where a Zettelkasten just happens to be one of the characters in the story? That a boy whose grandfather has a well developed Zettelkasten, and so the boy gets exposed to it and starts his own little notebook. Um, it's not finished yet, mind you. So I'm not yet a published fiction writer, but that's, that was where my own journey of writing came in. So in my entrepreneurial teaching, you know, I'm not coming in front of people saying, oh, I'm a wonderful, look at me, I'm a great published fiction writer, so follow my guidelines. I'm saying, no, all those fiction writers can't be bothered with you. I'm all you get make the best of it. I do have a background in psychology and I have some power cards.
0: That's wonderful. It's kind of that, uh, the, I think the phrase you said was like the last of the least, you know, but, but in the end, that was the person that had the perspective to solve the problem, you know, because you're not so ingrained in the way you think it should be done. You have the perspective to see, just like when you showed up to that meeting to facilitate. I'm sure a large piece of it where you weren't ingrained in the challenges that they were facing, you had that that fresh perspective that you could bring in that allowed you to see the problem in a new light. Um, so, mm-hmm. and when you're just talking about wishing you'd come across the the in which I'm gonna ask you about next to kind of define uh, for people that may not have heard of it. Um, Nicholas Gassien is someone that's a part of the little Zettlecastin, the anti-net Zettlecastin community we're a part of. He's 17 and he's doing it. So I know that for my son, who's 11, I will be first in line to get your book because I'm I'm hoping, <laughs> I'm not pushing it on him, but I'm like, modeling it making sure he's seeing me doing it hoping you know that maybe it's something that he'll take to as he starts to move into his teenage years because uh I I I absolutely agree and I tried I fought for years ever since I was a teenager to figure out a way to collect and capture knowledge as well as my own thoughts and insights and it always just ended up like scattered all over the place and I didn't know what to do with it or how to keep it and I'm sure I think there's probably tons of notebooks that I just threw out in the end, you know, <laughs> but if I'd, if I'd had it in a collection, the way that the, the Zettelkasten allows you to connect and evolve thoughts, it, you know, it, it would have been pretty cool to be able to look back on how I, I've evolved, how my brain has evolved, how my interests have evolved. Um. So, so give us, because you're amazing at teaching, what the Anti-Net zettelkasten is you do that as part of your writer mom mm-hmm. course so give us you know as as brief as you can give us kind of your the short version of what an anti-net zettelkasten is
1: okay an antinet zettelkasten captures ideas thoughts and dreams if you've ever had the experience of you're in a conversation and it's going well. And the other person is kind of going on a little bit long. You you understand what they're going in, but they're still belaboring it a little bit. And you uh, know what you want to say. And then then they finish and oh, you forgot what you were going to say. You know how awful it is. And then just before they're about to take off on their next long winded thing, ah, oh, it comes back to you. So you know how quickly you can lose an idea and it's just gone. And instantly it can come back. So that is a a real fascinating concept to me. It was what is this idea that it can disappear so quickly and reappear so quickly? It all the same concept happens when you if you have a great idea and you where's the pen where's the pen where's the pen and by the time you found the pen, it's gone. So. The idea of a casting for me is a, the place to capture ideas. I keep these so handy, that's how I could grab one so fast, kitchen, I don't care where it is. If a thought occurs to me, it gets it gets noted. Also, if I read a book, and my gosh, that author made a good point, I capture it. Um, there's more that could be said about that. It's a formal process. But, I, but basically, you capture thoughts on cards. Then, what you do is you, you wanna put them someplace. So there's there's a way of figuring out a number to give them. And the only purpose of the number is so you can find them in amongst your, your other cards. So you can give it a, a home to put it. But you wanna put it next to the most closely related idea that you've already got in there. You've already got a different idea, instance, and you want to put them nearby one another because they're related. And then not only that, here's your new idea, here's your old idea. Oftentimes something incredible will occur to you putting these two together that you had not thought of before. And so you'll add that to your new idea, how you link these two, and they go together in the box. Later on, when another fantastic idea occurs to you, you end up building a whole structure and pretty soon you have ideas popping that never occurred to you, and as best as you can tell in reading, why why hasn't everybody else thought of that before? Well, maybe because they didn't put them together, where they could find them all at the same time, and then you feel like I got to do something with this. I got to I got to I got to write something. I've got to I got to get this out, and that's why they say it, it's a writing machine because you just end up with these insights. Collectively, this amounts to an insight and you just feel you got to share it. And to me, that's that's the power and the beauty of a Zettelkastin in a nutshell.
0: Awesome, yeah, and I'm sure people can find more about it, including in your, your course. So that brings us to the the specifics of the work that you're doing now, and I'd love to hear like the, so what you got going on now. So if someone were to go jump in with your work now, what they would experience, what they would become a part of, and then whatever you're interested in sharing with us about the future vision of where you're, you're looking to take it after this, uh, 35 week course that you've been building. Cause you're, you're getting close to the end of that in the grand scheme of things are closer to the end than the beginning. So tell us about, about what you got going on now and then what's to come in the future.
1: Okay, so what I have going on right now is a mechanism by which I can give a writer, even someone that doesn't even have quite enough time to write, three superpowers. If you complete the whole class, you get three superpowers. The first superpower that you get is the power of connecting threads. I teach you how to use these cards to keep track of all of your writing segments so that even if you're writing on scattered journals, you can track onto these cards where to find what you wrote so that you can find the threads of your story, even if they're scattered all over the place. That's the power of connecting threads. And I also teach you how to to connect your plot line, your characters, all using these cards. The second superpower that I give you is the power of living characters. And it's based on a very, very, very well-studied library of 28 character traits that break down into four different groups. And we'll study these to the point where the character trait is not only well-defined and well-imagined, but where it can bring up emotions quickly. If you have um, a, a dog in your household... Everyone who has welcomed a dog into their household has at one time or another said to someone dear to them, honey, do you want to take the D-O-G for a W-A-L-K? And you know the reason you didn't use that word was because the dog's the emotions would be going immediately. The tail would be wagging. He'd be up on his feet, you know. In fact, if he weren't, You say, honey, I think we need to call the vet. It's that reliable. Well, your subconscious mind can be trained to that level of acumen on those 28 character traits to where the mere mention of that word can bring that library of emotions back. And the value of that is when you have a mechanism for tracking those character traits for each of your characters, when you sit down to write and you pick up your diagram of the character that you're working on and you go around the character traits and bring those emotions back you're connected emotionally with where your story was going with it only taking a few moments just like those coders could sit down and code the accurately code the emotional responses of the people they were viewing on that recorded interaction in real time. That's how fast you can bring those emotions back into your heart and into your writing. So that gives you consistency across the time, across time fragments, but it also gives you the power of creating a, a provocative story. Because if your story begin has a beginning and an ending set of character traits for your character, you can show your hero's journey how your character came from where I was to where he ended up. And it will be a completely believable story because I'll show you how to motivate that as a character arc, how to construct that into your code. And That's the power of living characters. Then the third superpower comes about through the magic of having completed all 35 lessons, 35 weeks, that's more than well over half a year, And that is the magic, if you recall back to school, the the feeling that you get on graduation day of knowing that I did that. I made that happen. I brought that to reality. And that is a, a power of awareness of your own ability to carry your dreams through to fruition. Even... When the people who ought to be sharing their craft with you and won't because they say you aren't worthy of them because you can't give it two hours a day. You can show them that you can produce work at their level. And that's what I want to help people do.
0: That is a beautiful vision. (laughs) And I've, I've mentioned this before, but especially when you go into the power of living characters. So my experience with fiction writing has been mostly in developing my Dungeons and Dragons characters. So, but I've experienced that. It's hard when you, you know, you play a game, you get into your character, you're sharing the story with others, which makes it extra fun, because now you have, you're you're not just dealing with you and the page, you have other people to to bounce off of. You're kind of only responsible for your own piece of the story. But then, you know, the session ends and then a week or two weeks or a month later, you try to jump back in and remember who that person was, how they they felt and, you know, the, just all of the, the emotional charge nature of everything that led up to that. But you're a different person than you were. You're in a different place than you were. So it's very hard. So that having that access code, turning you know, that connection, that emotional connection into basically a computer program that you can, you can tap Mm -hmm. into and access for yourself is going to make it so that you can dive right back in. Because that's the hardest part of any Mm -hmm. kind of deep work is you kind of need five to 15 minutes, maybe even a half hour, depending on how your brain works to like reconnect to what it is you're doing. And then you get into a flow. And as a parent, you're lucky if you have half an hour of, Energy, let alone alone time, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> to uh, to be able to do that, especially if you have young kids. So, what have been some stories uh, that you've gotten feedback you've gotten of people going through your course? So, I believe you've you've mentioned uh, when we've talked in the past that your niece has been starting mm-hmm. to write more, which is really. I mean that was the inspiration for it all, so that's a win right there. It makes it worth the while. Um, but what have you what have you heard you know from the impact that your work has had so far?
1: Uh, well, that was my big one because she was the person that uh, for the reason that I created the course. But I'm getting a lot of feedback from people in ways that I didn't imagine. For one, I titled it uh, you know that that it was for the writer mom. Well, half of the people in my class are guys. And of uh, the women, they're not all moms either. So it has a broader appeal than I would have imagined. Uh, but also, I'm even for reasons that I wouldn't have imagined. Um, a, a mutual friend of ours it is a certified uh, financial planner, and she teaches uh, mostly women how to break the paycheck to paycheck cycle. And she needed to write her budgeting workbook that teaches how to do that. And she was having a hard time getting herself to do that. And she used the course to, the emotions that she needed to get back was her feeling of service for the people that she was trying to reach, tap back into her emotions of frustration when she and her husband were ridden with debt and living paycheck to paycheck, and connect with that so that knowing that other people are experiencing that and that she has the way to help them get out of that, that enabled her to have the motivation to actually get busy and finish her book. So that was the one that surprised me the most. Um, uh, Another mutual friend of ours is uh, a copywriter um, who found that it was an amazing set of insights into the motivation of people because a, a, a copywriter has to motivate people. And if you understand people's motivations, that that helps a lot as well. So it's reached a broader segment. And I'm I'm also, well, that would tie into the future, but as a segue towards that, I'm teaming up with um, a wonderful author, Victoria Crowder, who has been teaching the other aspects of writing for 15 years at the university level. And uh, she found my work to be... um, Not utterly unique because, of course, people have talked about putting character traits in stories. And, of course, people have talked about emotion in stories. You can't even write a story without emotion. But that it was the most complete and systematic that she'd ever encountered. And she studied the teaching of writing, you know, much more formally than I have. So uh, together, she has the, the more normal and natural parts of learning how to write, I would say, Uh, And so she's going to, we're going to build a community together where she can teach what she knows. I can teach what I know. We can bring together writers, but also readers who want to understand the motivations that go into writing, some of whom can become beta readers for our writers because writers need a sounding board. And then, but then what do we do when we want to publish it? Well, we're gonna collect some dues, not a huge amount. We're thinking like $8 per person for whatever role you have in the community and and gather together maybe some vision members who will wanna be in the vision circle and contribute more like maybe $50 a month to get a share a month in whatever comes out of this, it's mysterious at this point, but where we could build together the funds to be able to publish people's work as it's ready. And, and our philosophy would be there's nothing that's unpublishable. There are going to be things that aren't ready yet. And we'll just keep working. And when they're ready, they can come out. And another part of the vision is as I, as this 35 lesson class finishes, I'm going to do a weekly springboard style where I set up a scenario and invite my viewers to complete the story. Change it if you like, however you like, but write a whole story that that, that, that idea gets you to. Then post it in our network. And we'll, when we have enough of them that get upvoted enough for publishability, we'll do an anthology and we'll publish that. And you can start be getting royalties because that's the other side of this whole thing is the publishing industry right now is crushing authors and it's crushing small independent booksellers. We, you know, as much as I care about writers, especially my precious niece writer, I also care deeply about physical analog books and small booksellers. And so that's another thing this community could do. Our readers could take our catalog to their local bookseller and say, would you like to carry some of these books? we could tell our readers you know no you can't buy the books online even though we published them carry the catalog to your bookseller and ask them to order it for you because we want to build them up get their book club to pick one of our books um you know your own husband uh has indicated that he would do as he's a teacher of of brick and mortar businesses. And Ken has said that he would teach a workshop to for the bookstore owners. So how to, be, how to help be more successful as a brick and mortar business in a world that's going more and more online. Uh, and also because we're small and we're self-publishing, we can fairly divide up the proceeds so that the bookseller gets a fair chunk, not some sliver. And the author gets a fair chunk, not some sliver. And the shareholders with their $50 a month contributions get back a a share too, as if they were just rewards for having, you know, put up the money. But but because you're not feeding the bank account of a billionaire, there's more to fairly go around. And that's the model we're going to go with. You know, the $8 a month will keep the lights on and everything else goes to the contributors themselves not one penny to go to enriching some individual
0: i love that's it have yeah.
1: long way vision
0: yeah yeah no i'm definitely going to have to have you come back on at least one more time in a few months and give us a a status update on how things are going and how the vision evolves cuz anyone yeah. that's done anything entrepreneurial knows that it it all almost always ends up amazing, but it definitely doesn't take the path that you think it's going to. So, so I'm I'm really excited to to see and hear how this unfolds out of time and uh, over time, and and find out how we can continue to support you too, because this is a a wonderful thing that I think is has a lot of value in in uh in our society today. Uh, <laughs> all right, so I have some. I need a better name for them, but I keep saying they're not so rapid-fire, rapid-fire questions. Uh, so just to 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 bring it home, because we've been talking for a while, it's all amazing. Again, I I wish I could sit here and just pull more stories out of you, because every time I think I've heard the best story you have, you come out with something else. Um, but uh, all right, so first one that I like to ask everybody is: uh, What should people look for in someone? who does what you do. So how do you find someone who does the work that you do, which is helping writers write? What should people look for when they're, they're looking for a teacher that can help them develop their writing?
1: I think if you're looking for a teacher who can help you develop your writing, look for someone who cares about you. Mm. Uh, Avoid people who are only there just to, you know, sell their books or promote themselves as being, I mean, maybe they are, and maybe you do want to read their books, but if you, if you want any custom care, you're going to want someone who cares about you. Um, And there, there are caring teachers because I know Victoria Crowder has been teaching for 15 years and she definitely cares. So I know I'm not the only one out there. Um, And they're just someone who wants to help you develop as a writer.
0: Yeah. And I think that goes for any Anyone that's offering to teach you anything, whether it's writing or marketing or martial arts, you know, if if you're getting that sense that they're doing it because they know it's going to add another revenue stream for themselves, then that may not be the person that you want to to learn from, or at least it, you, you're going to want to test it a little bit first and see if it's worth doing. Because yeah, I li- I like that you know, find find the person that's seeing you as a human and, and cares about mm-hmm. you as a human. Even if you're not having the direct interaction, if it's a larger group format, you can mm-hmm. still get a sense for whether or not they care. So yes, absolutely. Um, all right, so now what's one thing you would suggest to our listeners that they can apply to their lives today from the work that you're doing?
1: If you, if you want to write, or even if your writing isn't anything around fiction or stories, become sensitive to the emotions that you are feeling during the day and when you're feeling something that's especially poignant in the moment put a word down to describe that feeling and then later in the day look at that word and see if you can bring back that feeling because that's a whole side of your brain that you have that is going untapped it's I call it the less verbal side of your brain. Others call it nonverbal, but it isn't nonverbal. We know it's nonverbal because you had to say W-A-L-K. Um, so you know even the, even the dog brain is capable of actually an amazing number of words to learn. And you, when you can clue keywords into your emotions, that can help you learn how to pull up that emotion when you need it. Maybe that emotion, you catch yourself, you you get that letter, and that is not true what they said, and you need to defend your child, you're going to have to go down, you're going to have to talk to the principal because that is wrong, and you have at a moment that letter comes in the mail, you have this really, really strong sense of resolve, capture that feeling, write down that word resolve, practice, just practice, see the word resolve, and bring back those feelings. Now, when you go, you make your appointment, you go in to your appointment to talk to the principal. All you have to do is look at that word resolve and you've trained yourself to get those feelings back. And you'll find that you can use single key words to help bring back into your spirit the emotion that you matched to those words. The emotion has to come first, then you give it a word and you practice marrying bringing that emotion up from that word it becomes a vocabulary word for you and you can use it to give yourself emotions when you need them if you're a writer you need the motions of your story but that's just an example everyone can use this
0: yeah it really sounds like there's as much social social emotional learning and self-awareness that someone can gain from your course as much as the writing piece of it, you know? And then also if there's any interest in the, the and I really feel like you're the the first, uh, it's maybe five, the first five or six videos of your course do an excellent job of giving an introduction to the Zettelkasten in a very accessible way. Cause it's one of those funny things where it's like, just take notes on index cards and give them a number. That's really mostly what it is, but also there's a lot of nuance complexity that you find as you start to to dive into it. So, so I think your um, your course gives a really accessible way of of doing it and learning to to play with it. Um, if if as you know, for our listeners out there, if you're someone that's always been excited by the idea of collecting notes or collecting ideas, but it's never quite taken shape in a way that you felt like you could then find it again after. So, I would recommend. Mm-hmm. I think that your course I'd recommend for both of those aspects. Um, In addition to if you want to be a writer as well. So you're really tapping into a a bunch of different needs and and ideas there. All right. So second to last question. What is the most valuable lesson that you've learned through your entrepreneurial teaching journey so far?
1: I think the most valuable lesson that I've learned is that don't sell yourself short. Uh, You may think that you don't have the right credentials. Um, and, but I can say that I've never had the right credentials when I've walked into any situation. And if you've got something in your heart to give, just, just put it out there and give it and don't wait for others to bless you and say, yes, you have my permission to give what you have to give.
0: Perfect. All right. And then the most important question, how can people connect with you and find your work online?
1: Uh, my YouTube channel is at Kathleen Spracklin. And that's S as in Sam, P as in Paul, R a c k l e n, Kathleen with a K a t h l e e n at Kathleen Spracklin on YouTube. And from there, any of my shows will in the show notes will have my website.
0: Perfect. Yeah, and I'll definitely put links in the uh, the show notes and the the description of the video here um so yeah if you're listening and you want to see all of the note cards that Kathleen was holding up you know you cannot uh, you can also watch it on YouTube probably should have said that at the beginning at this point they're done but uh, <laughs> but that's okay uh so you can watch these videos on YouTube as well as listening to them on your favorite podcast platform and thank you so much kathleen for joining me i've been i've been anxiously awaiting this one because i knew it was going to be super fun talking to you so keep keep being you keep doing what you're doing it's wonderful
1: well thank you so much stephanie for having me and you're doing a wonderful job too i can tell you with absoluteness i have watched i've listened to every one of your podcasts from the very first one and um i i never miss a one i think you're fantastic i love how you find interesting people and interesting journeys um and i think you're doing terrific work so you keep on being you too
0: awesome thank you <laughs>